Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshot.net. Hello, hello. You are welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Anshah.net. This is Simon Lewis speaking, and I am really, really happy to be joined by my good friend, Annie Asgard, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, uh, because uh, like me, she wears a lot of different hats. Uh, but today uh, we're um, interviewing in the middle of our spring break uh, because um Annie is wearing her hat of the chair of ELSTA. And for those of you who don't know what ELSTA stands for, I also Googled it. Um, and ELSTA uh, is the English Language Support Teachers Association of Ireland. And it is a really, really important group, as I'm sure you're going to find out if you haven't heard of it before. Annie, thank you so much for agreeing to chat to me. It, it, it feels it feels lovely being able to kind of talk to someone I know well. Uh, we I think we met in 2003. Um, I don't know if we've actually ever met face to face, though, have we? Salam, Simon. Um, no, I think this is the first time we're chatting. We've chatted on the phone before, but this is our first time meeting face to face. So thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited for this chat. Great stuff. I always ask a first question in these interviews, uh, and it's pretty much like a job interview, which is the tell me about yourself, how you got into teaching and how you ended up in the position of the chair of the of ELSTA. OK, so um, uh, sorry for those of you who've um, heard me speak before. If this is repetitive, you can fast forward this bit. So, um, yeah, my name is Annie Asgard and I'm currently an EAL um, stroke set teacher in a a school in Galway City um, and um, I'm job sharing at the moment with a fantastic um, woman named Maureen Brown with whom I could not do any of the things that I do. So uh, yeah, I started my teaching career um, in Philadelphia. I trained at Temple University, which is um, a very, very um, dynamic, diverse school in the center of Philadelphia. Um, and I was born in Iran and I moved to the States with my family. So my parents trained as um, doctors and they moved to the States to um, further their education in the mid 70s um, before the revolution. So then um, they became consultants and then it became quite dangerous for us to go back. So we stayed in the States and then I trained in early childhood and elementary education at Temple. And my first job was in the Caribbean which is exactly opposite to Ireland, climate-wise. Um, and then I went back and did a master's in education at Temple. Um, it was in what at the time was known as psychology of reading, which would be kind of dyslexia, really, and um, specific reading uh, challenges for kids. And then I taught in Japan for five years um, at a, international schools. Um, and then I lived in France for a couple of years. And then I've been here since 2002. So, and I think we met just shortly after I arrived. So yeah, mm -hmm. that's a little bit about me. Great stuff. And then how did um, ELSTA come about? Yeah, so uh, I've been the chairperson of ELSTA now since 2020, um, myself and a really fantastic group of um, really motivated teachers. We kind of reignited ELSTA in um, the autumn of 2020. Um, but prior to that, ELSTA was um, originally formed by um, 
a group of interested teachers who, um, at I suppose, in I think 2005, 2006, there was there was um, I suppose a, a real need for English language support, um, and there were English language support teachers in quite large numbers. About three and a half thousand English language support teachers were working in Irish schools at that time. Over um, the subsequent 10 years or so, those numbers dwindled to about 500 um, English language support teachers. And the role changed a lot. Um, as you probably know, uh, we've had a number of different models of provision for EAL. So it moved into the GAM EAL model. And now um, at the moment, there are very few schools that have a dedicated EAL um, position. And I suppose the nature of the EAL um, teaching in Ireland is it doesn't require a specific um, credential or qualification or even training in English language support um, or um, in the primary sector, really all it requires is somebody to be uh, primary qualified. So um, the position tends to have quite a lot of um, transit. It's a transitory type of position. People are in it for a year, two years, sometimes a couple of years, and then they move on. So um, we, ELSTA has um, taken on uh, in the last couple of years, a real role in terms of um, providing support for teachers. Um, there is a Facebook group, which was started by Livia Healy called Teal, Teaching English as an Additional Language about four years ago, which is amazing to think um, that it's been that long. Um, and that uh, group changed names to ELSTA, a Facebook group. Um, and we have, I think over 4,000, followers on that group. So that's a place to get real practical information. Mm -hmm. But ELSTA as um, an association since 2000, we've had 10 events, um, which we've worked on in collaboration with education centers um, to uh, provide, you know, um, academics, um, practitioners, uh, and speakers to our, our members, but also the wider educational um, groups in Ireland. So that's been really, really a good support for teachers and for um, school, also for SNAs too. I think it's really important mm -hmm. as SNAs often are left out of this um, discourse, but they mm -hmm. often are the ones who are working with um, developing multilingual students face-to-face -face for a lot of the day. That's true. And uh, I mean, I know technically that's not supposed to be their role, but I mean, needs musts in school and all that kind of stuff i i I'm, i didn't know there were so many uh, people engaged with us that's that's fantastic and it, i mean it's a wonderful achievement to be able to um have so many people involved but also to run so many seminars and such i mean you're only really up and running again for the last couple of years so to run so much um is is really admirable so uh, i'm 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 Gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, but pleasantly surprised, uh, despite feeling I, I knowing I've, I kind of feel I have a, my eyes on the ground a lot of the time. I wasn't aware how uh, successful things have gone. Having said that, I, I, I also um, know that if uh, when I'm at teachery events, uh, I seem to see that there's quite a lot of schools and there's quite a lot of teachers that don't really know what EAL is particularly. And that might be because of the lack of training, but for teachers and maybe for parents who might, for whatever reason, listen to this podcast, uh, uh, what what is an EAL teacher? What 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 do they do? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I suppose um, going back sort of to the early two thousands, the role really was um, conceptualized and the lens was very different, and the language around the role was very different. Um, we were referred to as English language support teachers, and really. 
um, because of the way the position was um, envisaged, you know, we were considered to be having completed our role when a student or a, a young person had achieved the level B1 in speaking, listening, reading, and writing. So what does that mean? What does B1 mean? So in the European framework, uh, the common framework for languages, which is used for all languages, not just English, um, there is level A1, which is beginner, really, if you want to think about it that way, um, and then A2 and B1. So really B1 is just, you know, you can order a drink in a shop, you have very, very basic, basic English or target language. Um, but really to engage with academic work and to study through, a, you know, a subject or an academic subject through a language, you really do need a higher level than B1. Mm. But as far as the support that we give to students, really, um, it's, it's mandated by the Department of Education that we have a minimum, a maximum, sorry, of two years and that we would have been able to appeal for a third year. Mm. Um, and, and there was a whole assessment process and we had to produce the results of that assessment. Um, for the department in order to appeal for the third year for a student who needed perhaps more than, than two years. But in fact, as time has moved on, we've discovered that in fact, the value of a child's mother tongue and literacy um, and numeracy, um, not only their mother tongue, but also their home culture must be and it is inherently um, important for a child's cultural and linguistic identity. Um, and also faith identity. And I know that's an area, Simon, that you're really interested in as well. But um, in order for a child to fully establish their, um, all of their social identities, um, and, and, not, and those aren't just limited to cultural, linguistic, and ethnic and faith identities, but all of their identities in order to achieve um, well-being, those must be recognized at school and not just recognized with signs in their own language or these quite performative kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. They really need to be acknowledged by schools. And so I think that that over time, this idea that I, you may have heard me talk about the deficit model of EAL. And I think mm -hmm. when I say that, a lot of people assume that I'm, I'm referring to SEN or um, special educational needs model as being a deficit model and thereby kind of referring to children with additional needs as being deficit. That's not it at all. I want to clarify that when I use the term deficit model, what I mean is us assuming that children who arrive to school with limited English are empty vessels mm. and that we pour English into them. And when they reach a certain level of English, we then go right there. Now that's ground off you go and you're ready to join the maths, you know, a science, history, geography and all the subjects. When in fact, that model looks at the child as having a deficit in English, which we then can remediate with English mm. as a treatment. <laughs> and then the child can engage, quote unquote, engage with the curriculum. Right. And so that, that absolutely disempowers the child's mother tongue knowledge, their cultural understandings and knowledge. And so when we talk about linguistically and culturally responsive practice, that acknowledges all that the child brings with them from their home language and their home culture, their ethnicity, their faith, all the things that they bring with them to school when they arrive on the first day 
rather than just focusing on the fact that, quote unquote, he or she doesn't have any language. And I know that's a term that we hear an awful lot. Um, you know, a, a teacher will arrive, you know, to an, to an EAL teacher in a school and say, so-and-so has arrived to this class. He doesn't have any language, you know, yeah. um, and that's, that's, you know, a very unfortunate thing to say about mm. a child. Um, obviously they have a language and in fact, they yes. might have multiple languages. And mm. that's why we use the term EAL. It acknowledges that English might be that child's additional language as opposed to ESL, which is English as a second language. language yeah. Yeah, so I hope I've answered head. your question. <laughs> I've yeah, absolutely. But and it's it's yeah. it's interesting though that um despite despite all that, um the government or the, the people who are involved in the curriculum and all the rest of it do consider you know what I I mean I don't know if they deliberately consider it, but they've lumped EAL in with special education. Um and I don't know when that that started. I mean, I, I became a principal in 2008 and I remember it was a, it was a, it was a, it was an odd time uh, for EAL because the whole system changed and it became essentially part of of this general allocation model. If I remember correctly, now I could be wrong on that, yeah. but it, that that's very odd, isn't it? That um, you know EAL is is still part of, or maybe it isn't, but it, it certainly became part of special education. Yeah, I mean, technically, for the purposes of provisioning. Um, EAL teachers and how EAL teachers are, uh, you know, in in terms of bean counting and and appointing EAL teachers to schools, um, the model, I suppose, in that sense is under the NCSE um, in terms of appealing through the staffing appeals uh, um, and that kind of thing. And I and I do recognize you know, that those kinds of things, there, there needs to be a standardized format for that. And, and that's that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, However, I think that, you know, looking at that through the lens of SEN um, and that there being some problem, um, you know, is and that also applies to problematizing or pathologizing, I guess, would be a better way of putting Mm -hmm. it. Any child who has needs, not necessarily only children who have language needs, but also children who have learning needs. Mm. I think pathologizing them and categorizing them and labeling them really isn't the way forward. Um, And I think that the idea of valorizing multilingual and developing multilingual students, um, you know, really at the end of the day, if, if what we're trying to do is work in a dual language system where English and Irish are the target languages in our schools, who better to model that than our incoming developing multilingual students? There are no better models for multilingual students that are in our schools already to see um, about how to acquire a language um, than those children who are arriving to our schools, um, who have to, at the end of the day, acquire English and Irish. And yeah. um, so I would say, you know, there's this idea that that if a child arrives here, we need to look for ways for them to be exempted from Irish. And I would I would challenge schools to really encourage parents um, and guardians to um, stick with Irish, because when children are um, do develop multilingualism at a younger age. And, and you know, it is, it is easier when you're younger, yes, but this notion that children are sponges is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if you're 
5, 15, or 25, or 65, if you, language is a social phenomenon, and if you sit in front of a laptop just listening to somebody speak another language, you will never learn the language. How you learn a language is communicating mm. and engaging. So they can learn Irish as easily as they can learn English and they can learn both of them at the same time. So mm. that's, that becomes a, a question that we often get is can children learn Irish? Yes, they can. And they can learn English at the same time. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And it's kind of interesting as well, I suppose, you know, it, I think it's a fair criticism that, you know, this we, we shouldn't see, you know, EAL um, or, or put EAL in the, in the same bracket as uh, special education needs. But I, I'm hearing, you know, with the new 2026 curriculum coming out and even with the primary languages curriculum that we're, we're supposed to be, you know, becoming more multilingual in our approach and, and, and respecting um, all languages, you know, not just, you know, English and Irish, let's say. Um, but I, I, and I think in 2026, the, there's going to be a new curriculum subject as such you know called is it is it going to be called modern foreign languages I, I i i so i mean that's that that hits a few alarm bells uh i think in in my head um would you feel the same way and and, and yeah wrong? i think i think you know um in terms of you know languages in general you know as i mentioned valorizing languages um and language learning you know, is important. And I, I don't think we need to categorize some languages as modern and other languages as, I don't know, old fashioned. I'm not really sure what word is the opposite of modern. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the term foreign again, uh, I mean, are we exoticizing it? Are we prioritizing foreign languages? Why are they just European languages? Um, I mean, Ireland and, and, you know, certainly the PPLI, um, One Voice for Languages, um, you know, there are so many groups who have done incredible work over the last number of years um, in highlighting and in, in you know, um, prioritizing languages um, with, with the Leaving Cert being um, promoted in, in other languages, in, in the community languages that exist in schools. You know, really, to me, it seems that it is, it is a retrograde step to be moving forward with this idea of modern foreign languages being the term that's used i would just call everything a language if yeah. it was if it was left up to me yeah yeah it just it's, it's funny it seems possibly just a hangover from maybe back back in the day when you know it, it, particularly in irish schools i think in the uk as well you had you know french spanish and german were the modern foreign languages right. and that's just what they were called you know i don't i don't know if it's a deliberate deliberate thing but we, we we have to like like all languages we have to evolve i suppose um i i wanted to ask you a little bit about um the up and away program if that's what it is mm -hmm. or framework is that still the official um I, I suppose framework for eal teachers it is i mean up and away it uses a thematic approach um and so you know in terms of learning a language certainly and and most most commonly for in particular for primary schools you know when when one learns a new language you know when you think about your own young children you know as toddlers when they were learning your first language or multiple languages at home mm -hmm. you didn't open the refrigerator and say okay today we're going to be learning fruits and vegetables and your child picked up cheese and he went no not today that's tomorrow <laughs> We're just learning fruits and vegetables today. 
Um, that is not how somebody learns a language, you know, and, and if you're driving along in the car and you're passing by animals and you're pointing out cars and pigs and your child says tractor and you don't say, no, that's transport and travel. That's next week's theme. Today, we're just doing farm animals. That's just not how children learn languages, mm. um, you know, and obviously, you know, the, the content has to be predictable um, and there are other ways around it. I mean, thematic teaching is really an ESL, you know, EFL approach, which is English as a foreign language. So if mm -hmm. I was in Korea and I was teaching someone English, you know, contextually, there's not a lot of English around, so I will have to recreate it. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of an area like where we live, where there's English all around us, it doesn't make a lot of sense to use a thematic approach, but that is what we have. What mm -hmm. I would suggest in order to kind of um, facilitate the use of up and away as much as possible to integrate it with your Ashter themes and with your Irish themes and with your SPHE themes. And I know that that can be really challenging when you're trying to do that, especially if you're an EAL teacher working in, you know, um, all of the class levels that are in your school. Um, or if you're a, a post-primary teacher and you're working with multiple different subjects, mm. obviously you're going to be working with the language around perhaps biology or maths or history or geography. That can be very challenging because you're trying to teach the content language while you're also trying to teach the basic grammatical structure of English. Um, you know, these things get incredibly complicated. But in general, yes, for primary school, we do use up and away. Um, and that is what we're given. It is based on the European Common Framework for Languages. So in terms of competences at the A1, A2, and B1 level, it is there. There is a kit that goes with it. I, a lot of teachers find that kit very challenging mm. um, to use. It's very time consuming. Um, but yes, that is what we have to use. And it's it's quite, I suppose, relatively speaking, you know, when you have, when you look at, you know, let's say curriculum textbooks, they change every few years really and there seems to be a lot of choice for for teachers you know to pick um you know a particular scheme that they like or whatever it might be this seems to be the only one is it 2006 when it came out or am I, I think so yeah 2006 yeah. um yeah I mean certainly it's it's there there's a you know our our website um www.elstaireland.com has a huge number of other resources um we have a twitter facebook and instagram um platforms that we that we have resources on um, and a lot of teachers you know do end up sort of reinventing the wheel when they get the position and they're looking for you know um functional language uh, in the different themes that you can use i mean we, we have um a lot of different kinds of ideas there but again yes it is i mean essentially one can use a workbook, a picture dictionary and a workbook kind of approach. Um, and then obviously, if a child is um, just at the beginning of learning English and they go back into the mainstream class when they aren't in a withdrawal or they don't have um, a support teacher in the class with them, they need something to be doing. Um, and that can be very challenging, you know, in terms of establishing the role of the EAL teacher whose responsibility, responsibility is it to set the work for the, the young person to do in the class when they're not with you, you know, and what do they do for homework? How much of the mainstream work can they manage? Um, 
obviously with differentiation, it is the responsibility of the class teacher to differentiate for everybody in the class. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that can be very challenging, um, you know, but, but clearly, um, you know, learning a language, if the child has, a, it's, it's what we call scaffolding. If the child has learned literacy skills and can read and write in their L1, which is their first language, they can transfer a lot of those skills onto English through scaffolding, mm. uh, scaffolding um, techniques. Um, and you, as a teacher, you use their mother tongue to sort of demonstrate how they can do that. So it's important to know what their mother tongue or their home languages are. Mm. Um, and you use it as a tool, really, in, in the EAL class. Um, for younger children, they're going to learn English the same way they learned their first language. So um, using TPR, which is total physical response, um, you know, and it, an example that a lot of people can relate to is things like Simon Says, we're mm-hmm. using a kinesthetic audio, auditory and visual, um, the three simultaneously to mm-hmm. teach the language and, and other approaches as well. It's much more difficult when you get to the post-primary um, level and students have to engage with a lot of content language. Um, yeah while also learning the English vocabulary and grammar and semantics. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the older they get, the, the, the harder it might be to kind of do that, I suppose, like, like, like anything. And I mean, one, one, one thing I've noticed um, about EAL teachers in my time is they seem to get, um, I, I, they seem to get also get the responsibility of inviting parents um, into the school to show off their, their heritage. Um, often, I, I would suggest inappropriately, but sometimes um quite well um I, I i i saw and i don't know what you think of this guy to me as as someone with not a, a huge amount of expertise in this i don't know what you think of this uh, where a parent is invited into a classroom to read a story in their in their heritage tongue or their their home language to the class um a story that they're all familiar with let's say a fairy tale um it seems to be a kind of a thing at the minute uh that i i i've seen happening you know is that is that um what what are your thoughts on that as an idea? I think um, as part of the primary language curriculum, there is, um, you know, a strong emphasis on linguistic diversity. And I think a lot of teachers may hear that and think, I don't know all those languages. I don't know how I can be expected to know all those languages. Um, And I think that, that the, you know, the main thrust of linguistic diversity is the appreciation and joy and curiosity and, fascination with the sounds of different languages with the way the different texts that you know the the texts look and um sort of listening to them and hearing about them and noticing and appreciating the similarities and differences and the uniqueness of each language so certainly having a storyteller or somebody coming in to read a familiar story um, and to hear the cadence and the tones of all the different languages and the richness of different languages. But even reading a language in English, um, mm. that being read by somebody who maybe has a different accent, um, mm. and I don't mean Carrier or Cork <laughs> or Donegal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who's reading English, perhaps maybe, you know, someone from South Africa or maybe somebody who grew up in India, but um, who, who speaks English. Um, that that students will form an, an understanding that not everybody that they come across is going to have an accent that's familiar and that they maybe will need to, to pay a little bit more attention. Mm. Um, and it is a skill to develop. 
um, to understand accents and appreciate the fact that everybody pronounces words slightly differently. Um, mm. And it does, it does also um, improve children's um, awareness and appreciation for difference in general not just for language difference, but also for learning differences. Mm -hmm. So if they do meet a child who has additional needs, who perhaps speaks slightly differently, that they won't automatically go, why are you talking so funny? Yes, so yes. That they, I, I think it broadens students' appreciation and in general for difference. Um, and yeah. so that's, that's a really another sort of added benefit. But in terms of listening to stories, I mean, if you have if you have a really good storyteller, they could be speaking any language and the yeah. student will be captivated. Yeah, so, absolutely. yeah, I think that that probably to me would be a more valuable experience than kind of a performative exercise of having, um, you know, an international day that, you know, the parents come and they dress up mm -hmm. and they have food and they sing a few songs and they go away again and you never hear about them again. Yeah. Yeah, until uh, next year. Until yeah. next year, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I want to talk to you about uh, one kind of, I suppose, one more big topic, given the the time that we're recording this podcast, uh, where are I suppose in the middle of a situation where there is war in in Europe, um, the in Ukraine specifically, and what this has done in a way has brought. EAL it kind of into the mainstream. I've never seen as many webinars uh, about teaching Ukrainian children English when they arrive in Ireland as refugees. And um, I, I, I suppose, you know, there's been an unprecedented move as well with the Irish government providing extra hours for Ukrainian children. And uh, they haven't done that before for any other event and, and so on. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I suppose I, uh, in some ways you don't want to be critical because it's obviously a good thing to provide uh, children with the resources they need. Uh, but, you know, th th there's something, I suppose, and I, I, in, in some ways it, it may not be okay to say it. Um, but in some ways we do have to challenge, you know, why, why now? Why not in 2008? Why not in 2012? Why not in 2000? Like why now? Um, and I suppose that's, that's part of my question. And then I suppose the, I suppose then once maybe we get over that a little bit, uh, like I, I, I might ask another question about, okay, look, it, this is what it is. And, um, what do we do? Um, I suppose as, as teachers, um, in the country. So I suppose you can ask, answer that question in any way you want, uh, or avoid it in any way. <laughs> There's no problem, <laughs> but I'm asking it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say, um, you know, first of all, before I say anything, I want to say, you know, a, a huge solidarity with the people of Ukraine and, um, you know, that the absolute tragedy to see, you know, families and, um, people be you know watch their homes being completely decimated it's it's absolutely you know something like this is unprecedented on the scale in which we're seeing it and I think I think really to be honest with you my feeling on it is and this answers your second question to a certain extent it's the scale um that that is different to be honest and so in terms of things that we've seen as EAL teachers who have been working in this space in Ireland for a long time and activists who have been also you know looking at war and trauma and migration trauma and um you know countries who have looking at countries who have been um 
colonized and countries who have been invaded, you know, this is this is a, a matter of scale mm. um, and the media focus. Mm-hmm. And really, that's why why it has had this impact that it's had on on um, Irish people, um, and in terms of of what we're seeing, um, and and the frequency with which we're seeing it on television, um, and we're hearing about it, and our responses are um, in line with that. I think you know, mm-hmm. and so i think in terms of how it's impacted in schools certainly we have it's it's unprecedented so uh for example in um the response to syrian refugees you know we had uh I, for lack of a better word i want to say we've had we had notice we had time to prepare um you know we we had a, the government had time to plan where they were going to be accommodated how they were going to be accommodated there were um liaison teachers and staff hired um you know there were time there was time to to recruit and train interpreters i mean you know this was all there was there was some process of planning Mm. um which you know obviously in this case was not um was not possible and the same the same would be said for um the uh, the afghan um families Mm. that arrived so i think that you know in that sense, Ireland's response is, is um, you know, commendable, to be mm-hmm. honest, you know, and, and so while I, I, I'm not always praising the Irish um, responses for things, I do think in that sense, it's very commendable. Have we learned any lessons? I'm not so sure. Okay. Do you know, um, I think that, you know, again, in terms of, of professionalizing the English language teaching position, um, and broadening it to a wider scope to incorporate culture um, and that sort of liaison role. I think that that's something, you know, that that could be considered and should be considered, whether it's in a regional approach where you had possibly, um, you know, somebody within each region or somebody within each sort of area who could act as a sustainable um, resource in that in that community who would work as a local um, train the trainer kind of position mm-hmm. so that it, that we weren't having to reinvent the wheel because in many schools the EAL teacher is often you know the the newest person to the school or mm-hmm. that you know um, maybe they work in that position for two years until they get a class teaching job where they can mm-hmm. do their dip um, it's often not a person or or it might be a person who's very close to retirement mm-hmm. and then they go and then another person takes that position. So it's not it's not a very sustainable position. When I say professionalize the role, I don't mean that the people who have that role aren't professionals. What I mean is um, so when there there is that postgrad um, training that is uh provisioned with substitute teachers that that uh, is funded by the department if there could be an equivalent um, training position for EAL uh, teachers like that where there was some investment from government so that teachers were incentivized to invest in training as an EAL teacher and then they they committed to staying in that position for a period of time yeah that um, you know that that all of the investment that they made in learning how to do that role would stay in that role Mm, that makes a lot of sense actually yeah Yeah. i I mean you're you're, i I think it's fair to say you're one of the few 
teachers in the country that probably has stayed in EL for, for quite a while. Yeah, um, I mean, there are there are a number of us and I yeah. know that they're around the country. But again, you know, when 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 we go, um, who knows, you know, a lot of those people, a lot of younger um, teachers who will work in EAL and perhaps are very passionate about it. Maybe mm-hmm. they will go on to become principals. Maybe they'll, you know, um, they'll move on um, themselves to have families and they'll be gone, you know. So it's it really needs to be sort of a specialized um, position in the same way that SEN teachers may work in autistic mm-hmm. special classes, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. I think it, it's something that that we might look at professionalizing in some way. And Elster would be quite happy to talk with anyone um, from the Department of Education about about yeah. moving forward in this way. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a huge amount of sense, and and uh, you know, and 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 well, well said, uh, absolutely. And it, it, I suppose in some ways, because of you were mentioning the scale of um, of this, I mean, it, there there's going to be schools. I find it surprising in, in you know in 2022 that there are quite a number of schools. I mean, we both work in urban enough schools, so we we, we would let's say be well used to having children from diverse backgrounds in our schools, no matter what the ethos might be. But there are still a considerable number of schools uh, in the country that have never had a child enrolling where English wasn't their first language. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, very rural schools doubling their population, um, you know, because uh, a number of Ukrainian families have moved into the area and so on. And I assume many of them are at sea because they've never, ever had to deal or teach, <laughs> not deal is the wrong word, but to teach a child where English wasn't a given. Um, if you could, I suppose, and it's maybe this will make this our last question to help, you know, a teacher who feels, oh my gosh, I don't know where to start. Where, where do they start? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you're right. In fact, um, because of a, a number of factors that include the housing crisis, um, the suddenness of, of um, the incoming families um, and, you know, the lack of capacity in many schools. Um, and unfortunately, I know, for example, I live in Galway, there is declining enrollment in a lot of the, the, the city schools mm. who do have the resources in terms of, um, you know, being Jesh schools, they would have the experience and the resources, the EAL teachers, the HSCLs, but unfortunately, you know, the rents are very high in the city. So um, although we have the capacity in terms of spaces available for families and students, we don't have the space, um, you know, we don't have the accommodation spaces. Mm -hmm. So the places where the accommodation spaces are available would be more rural areas where they perhaps, like you mentioned, wouldn't have the experience in terms of culturally and linguistically diverse um, communities coming in. So certainly I would say as a matter of priority, um, one would need to look at sort of using trauma-informed practice mm-hmm. with families. And so that's, I, I guess, really the very first thing. And that would be as much as possible using existing resources in your area. So I know um, for a lot of schools, you know, they, they will have to seek support from um you know, that NEP psychologists would be the first area port of call and their local um, social services should be able to support them with local areas, but also, you know, larger bodies like the Irish Refugee Council, um, NASC, 
um, some of these larger organizations will be able to give them some support in terms of, um, you know, interpreters support for the families themselves, because I think that it's a lot to take on a very traumatized mm. family and young person without any support and no previous experience. Mm. Um, so I would say that for schools to reach out for support services, I know that many times as schools, you know, we sort of go, we're going to, we're going to do this. We can do this. And, you know, this is a very specialized area um, working with traumatized um, families and young people who have experienced war or migration mm. trauma and you know it's it's not even just a, a matter for um, somebody who has uh, experience with psycho psychosocial problems it's specifically psychosocial problems for those who've experienced war and migration trauma so it's even specialized again so um, I think that you know for us as we're we're teachers that's not our area. Mm. And I'm, I'm talking about myself here. Mm. You know? And so mm. I think that we need to accept that there are things that we don't even know that we don't know. Mm. I understand. And yeah. To acknowledge that we can't do everything. Yeah. And all of the goodwill that we may have in our hearts and the desire to want to help um, is, you know, really admirable and should be applauded and should be recognized, but that sometimes we need to say to ourselves, that, right, this is bigger than what I can manage and what my staff can manage. Mm. And we need to look outside ourselves. And I think two, two other really important points I think that I haven't seen raised is it's really important to remember that the stories that these families bring to our schools are theirs to tell. They're not mm. ours to tell. And we need to be really conscious about taking photographs, media, mm. social media, you know, they don't need to be on the front cover of our local paper with balloons and banners and yellow cup and blue cupcakes. They've experienced real trauma. And yeah. we need to recognize that while we're feeling very welcoming towards them, and they may feel indebted to us mm. to want to let us welcome them, yeah. Really, it's not about our need to feel that we're doing a good job welcoming them. It's about their need for comfort and safety and mm -hmm. security. And so maybe taking the focus away from, you know, performatively showing all the things that we've done for them, mm. and just letting them do, do things at their own pace. Yeah. And I suppose the second thing is around... Um, just that piece, if you do have, you know, Ukrainian families coming to your school, keep in mind that you may have other families at your school who've experienced war or migration mm -hmm. trauma, who you never recognized, you know, and you never made any concessions for or made any assemblies for, or you never mm -hmm. learned their national anthem and how they might feel about that. And, yeah. and you know, what value they might see in their own experiences. Um, and it's, it's not really the whataboutery of this. It's just your own awareness of the fact that, you know, there, there may even be um, children who've experienced other types of trauma. Yes. They live in homeless hubs. They may live in centers for people who've experienced domestic violence. They may feel very disconnected. Yeah. Or um, have problems with attachment or other types of trauma that are triggered 
through, you know, the experiences that they're they're learning about through the Ukrainian students arriving to your school. So it's really important to keep an eye out for all of the families and children in your school. Um, and that's before, yeah. Trauma. yeah. And that's um, before you even look at up and away, uh, I, I think. And that's that's very yes. well said. And, and that's the thing is, you know, in terms of, of assessing children and trying to determine, you know, like I've been working in this space for 20 years and, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you if a child has a language or a learning problem until they've really settled into school mm. um, and are comfortable because when a child is in a trauma brain um, and in that heightened sense of um, flight or fright or freeze or fawn, they're not going to be able to learn a language. Mm. They're not going to be able to take a test or, you know, um, perform anything for you. That's yeah. going to give you an idea of what their capabilities are so really they just need to relax and chill out for a few weeks um and to feel safe and secure and comfortable so as much security and regularity you know as you can give them and i, I think the other issue too is a lot of times and i i saw this in refugee camps a lot of different groups so you'll have clowns You'll have puppeteers, storytellers who will want to come and give this family or the child experiences mm. because it, really we want to distract them from the trauma. And mm. that's there's a place for them to have fun and to enjoy themselves and to do really fun things. But I think that to a certain extent, uh, some of those activities may be for ourselves yeah. to make us feel like we're making them feel better and it makes us feel better about comforting them. But all of us who have children or who are around children, you know, if you gave your child sweets and candy and brought them to the cinema and the next day it was the zoo and the next day it was a clown parade and the next day mm. they, they, it can be too much for them. Yeah. So as much kind of, you know, of no, a balance. A, yeah regularity yeah. regularity you know and just a normal school day where they're not the center of attention constantly because they need some regularity and some routine mm -hmm. um and i think that that's that's something that i would also suggest is that you know kind of keeping the sort of uh the very interested and really well-meaning groups at arm's length is, is probably one of the most challenging things. If you talk to anyone who's worked in the refugee education space, that's the one thing that everyone will tell you is keeping the really and genuinely very caring people who want to help, keeping them at arm's space. So you'll have people who want to do yoga with them <laughs> and another group will come and they want to do cooking classes and another, you know, that's all brilliant, but they just need time to settle in um, and just have a regular go for a walk with their friends, with their family and spend time as a family alone. Mm. They don't need to be with you or with us all the time. So, yeah, I think that that would be the final thing I have to say about that. I'm sorry for the lecturing, but I think that these are things that that probably we haven't ever talked about before. So it's really important to get that out there for me. So I always ask my guests, as you, as you probably know, Annie, uh, on this podcast, uh, because it's called If I Were the Minister for Education, um, what they would do if they were given the position for a day or two and they got a benign dictatorship, as I'd like to call it, 
and they could do whatever they wanted with the education system, what would be the one thing, and it doesn't have to be related to EAL this time, what is the one thing you would do if you were the Minister for Education? Wow, what a great question. Um, well, I have to say, because I think there's so many, I've heard some contributors of yours before have really good ideas. For me, I would say that I would have a position which is kind of um, partially in uh, Roderick Gorman's um, department and partially in Norma Foley's department. So um, it would be jointly um, refugee and seekers of asyl asylum education. So, um, and then that department would be combined with a multilingualism department. So um, that would be kind of combined also with a diversity, equality and inclusion um, minister for state. And I would make that appointment um, and I would make it have to be somebody who is somebody who might experience um, mm. some discrimination themselves under one of those categories or possibly three or four um, people who would work in that department, because I think that it's, it's something that, um, you know, is kind of lacking there, you know, a, a little bit of um, an umbrella group, I guess I would say for all of those areas, you know, because at the moment for um, refugee and asylum seeker education, there really isn't an umbrella group who oversees that, which is I think how we've sort of wound up in this situation with EAL where we are in now, which is like we spoke about before, where it's kind of half in SEN, but it's not really, it's half in languages, but it's not really. Um, so yeah, that's what I would do. Okay. And the, the, I, I'm interested there uh, because you, you mentioned that this would be someone who is experienced, um, you know, some, uh, some or all or uh, of, you know, those experiences where they're, uh, and I, I've, I've noticed, and I've said it recently there that, the people who represent Ireland generally and at, at political level, certainly there, there is, there doesn't seem to be any diversity anymore. I, I remember when I was growing up in the 1980s, the, the doll was more diverse than it is now. Now it was all very white, but it was, but the, the people that were in there came from, um, you know, different ethnic backgrounds. Um, not many, but currently we have almost zero. And, I'm kind of it would be kind of interesting that I mean I don't know if Canada did deliberately um because I was uh, I, I remember when um what's his name Thoreau is it uh the uh he, he they they there was lots of photos on the internet of his cabinet and there was gender diversity there was uh faith diversity there was ethnic diversity and all that I mean was that is that what you're saying in a way or was that um sorry yeah i mean i think you know certainly like it, we we've seen through some of the um the most recent um you know pretty patel for example you know it, being a member of a of a um a group to which um you know, perhaps discrimination might happen doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have views mm -hmm. and beliefs that are going to, to, to provide, uh, you know, an equal um, and fair treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and we can see that, you know, in, in, in the UK's recent, um, you know, Rwanda fiasco, yeah. but, um, you know, certainly I think that, you know, uh, we had inspections of schools for inclusion of children with uh, special educational needs 
you know, um, and we, we can look at inspections around um, child protection and safeguarding. I don't see why we can't have a special, um, you know, inspectorate uh, view to look at the equality and diversity that exists in schools. And if students from, you know, particular backgrounds, um, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are treated in an equitable way at school. Mm. And, and who do you ask when you want to know that? You ask the young people, you ask their parents, mm. you ask the very limited number of staff members who work in schools if they have had those experiences. Um, and, it, you know, I, I mentioned just today on Twitter that I have never been asked that question. Mm. Yeah. By anyone in government um, and, you know, uh, inviting me to a, a panel on a different topic and, you know, using my opinions about things is not, is not, um, you know, that's not research. Research is when you ask me what I think and you allow me to say my opinions about them. And, you know, I know that there, there are, you know, there have been some really good uh, programs, Migrant Teacher Project and Turn to mm -hmm. Teaching as others, and Orlaine Keene is doing amazing work in NUIG um, and Manuela Hines, but, you know, these are really, really small little raindrops in an ocean of um, a need for change in the profession. And, you know, if we look at sort of 12 to 15% um, of, of diverse communities in Ireland um, in terms of representation, but we have the second highest percentage of representation of children under the age of 15 in Europe, you know, only behind Luxembourg. So mm. we do have a very high percentage of young people who are from linguistically and culturally diverse backgrounds. So we need to start seeing them in our classrooms, in our staff rooms, um, and in our schools, you know, and all of the excuses that we can have between the Irish language, between they don't want to go into teaching, they don't want to work in schools, it's not our fault, they don't, you know, all of these things we can hash over and hash over, but ultimately there has to be a will from government and there has to be an, an acknowledgement and the people to ask are people like you and I about what our experiences have been to date mm -hmm. so that we can look at, you know, what the, not only what the barriers are, but once you're in the system, once you've passed all of the barriers, what kinds of things are going to um, keep people in the system what kinds of things are going to stop them from leaving yeah and I, I think and I, and I, I mean I, I maybe I'm only going to speak for myself but I, I I'm going to guess that it's because we're quite strong-minded people that we stay and that we continue to and maybe because we're not asked because we're quite balshy <laughs> that's the right word I, I would probably get hazard yes and I and I think too that we have we both know a number of people who don't come forward and don't speak out mm -hmm. because they don't have permanent jobs is one reason and another reason too is sometimes the discrimination that one faces isn't evident to somebody until they go for a post of responsibility mm -hmm. or possibly until they go for a permanent job or maybe until they move to leave the school they're in and go to a different school and sometimes there can be internalized um, mm. racism that you don't even recognize until later on um, you know uh, further on when you you get a bit older that you realize hang on a minute I didn't even realize that um, and, and that is a phenomenon that happens um, mm. so yeah I mean 
there certainly needs it, it it's a, it's something that we need to talk about it and you know those programs that i mentioned earlier are about uh recruiting people from post primary and from um existing migrant teachers outside of Ireland into the teaching profession, but we really haven't looked at people who are already in the teaching profession. And I don't mean just fresh into the teaching profession because you do go through that honeymoon phase when you think everything is wonderful and lovely. And, you know, um, it it can be um, a little while until you realize the reality of of how things are. And and those kinds of conversations have to happen. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, my, my first few years of, of primary school teaching, I, I kind of, I just, I, 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 if you had asked me then what you might ask me now, I would have had a totally different answer. You know, I would have been very accepting. Of, this is, you know, it's okay. It's grand, you know, but when it clearly isn't. But anyway, we could do a whole other podcast yeah. on that alone. And I'm sure we will. I'd love to do that again with you because I think well, if they're not going to ask us, we'll just tell them. Yeah, and they'll have to listen. And, uh, and we will cha- hopefully change the world. But I think what we'll do um, is because we could talk about this um, for, for another full hour or two, is that um, we'll, we'll stop there. But if people want to learn more about um, EAL, uh, about ELSTA, about you, um, where can people best find you? Yeah, so I um, we have the Elsta website, um, so it's www.elstaireland.com, and from there you can hop off and find all of our social media platforms. If you'd like to be an Elsta member and you're a primary, post-primary, or early childhood education teacher or further education, or if you work in third level in um, an area that kind of overlaps with EAL, you're certainly welcome to join. Membership is free for the moment, mm-hmm. um, and if you just click on become a member and then you can access once you've done that you can access our members only section so we have all of our webinars that we've done to date recorded there you can view if you are a member so we welcome you and we'll see you on our platforms fantastic annie it's been absolutely brilliant chatting to you and uh and and i can't believe it's taken so long to actually have a a one-on-one conversation uh, and, and had to be on a podcast imagine that we'll have to change that I've, I've been threatening to go to Galway a lot uh, to come and meet you and it just hasn't worked out but I'm going to have to make a conscious effort uh, to do that and if you're ever in sunny Cardo uh, make sure you do the same uh, Annie it's been a pleasure having you and thanks for joining me on my podcast if I were the Minister for Education and uh, we will be uh, back uh, soon uh, with uh, we have a couple of interviews lined up actually to be honest you might be interested in some of them Annie uh, I'm um, hoping uh, to speak uh, about climate catastrophe um, with uh, 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 two teachers who are very involved and want to get word out there. And I've just, uh, as of this morning, uh, uh, in a more quirky way of things, uh, people might know, I, I think I've spoken on the podcast before about being a former All-Ireland chess champion when I was a child, but I'm meeting um, people who are involved in promoting chess in Irish schools soon. So I'm really looking forward to maybe doing some reminiscing about my glory days uh, when, I, <laughs> when, I was rem- when I was representing my country in the, in, in the uh, I, uh, Olympics for Ireland in, in the world of chess. How exciting was that? But you'll have to wait another few weeks for that. Uh, but uh, until then, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you again soon. All the best. Bye.